We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where I help you stop putting out fires and start leading. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am your host, Jethro Jones. Excited today to have Ryan Stoyer on the program. Ryan launched the first project-based learning middle school in the country and is the founder of Magnify Learning, a uh, project-based learning professional development organization that equips teachers, instructional coaches, and principals across the country to engage learners, tackle boredom, and transform classrooms. Prior to founding Magnify Learning, Ryan was an engineer for a Fortune 50 company, an 8th grade English teacher, and a missionary. He shares his education and leadership insights on YouTube and on the PBL Simplified podcast. He is also the author of the book PBL Simplified, which will be released in just a couple weeks. Ryan, welcome to Transformative Principle. Jethro, thanks for having me on. Really excited to be here. Oh, man, I'm excited to have you here, and I'm excited to talk with you. Tell us first about launching the first project-based learning middle school in the country. Not a lot of people get to say that, so tell us more about that. Yeah, it was the first through the New Tech, New Tech Network, uh, Network, and it was really exciting grassroots work. So I'd left UPS as an industrial engineer and wanted to go make a difference in the school system. So picked the southwest side of Indianapolis to do that, and you know, part of that journey is I taught traditionally for four years and I didn't see the results that I thought I was going to see, right? That's not why I left engineering to see kids. You know, I had this student and he, he failed out of school, dropped out of high school first semester of his freshman year. And I was like, is that even legal? Can you even do that here? <laughs> like I did, didn't know that. So, but it definitely wasn't why I left. So we saw project-based learning and we saw all of our learners jump in. Uh, so we saw in that first year, you know, demographically balanced in a large urban middle school, 
we were a percent and a half higher in attendance. We had at 25% of the kids, we had 8% of the discipline. And in an F school, we would have been a B if you could have pulled out our data, which you can't, by the way. But, uh, right, the re so kids were showing up to school, and generally they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. And we really saw them have new opportunities that, you know, kind of broadened their perspective and the opportunities that they saw. So we just dove in full force. There weren't as many resources as there are now, you know, so yeah. we were creating a lot of things. It was that that fun entrepreneurial work, at least in my mind, right? Staying up till midnight, you know, making group contracts because we needed to have them, you know, a different schedule because that's what best fit what learners needed. So all those pieces were, it, it was exciting. And on top of that, it, it was working, right, for our learners. So it was a time that, you know, I, you just cherish those times, those really early grassroots pieces. It was really, really exciting. Yeah. And really the proof is in the pudding, right? And the, right. the scores may may go up but nobody's really in it for the scores the scores on state tests are there to make it legislatively convenient as nick fisher says to see how schools are doing but that that doesn't mean a lot what matters a lot more like you said is whether or not kids were attending and whether or not kids were doing what they were supposed to or a better way to say that is whether or not they were engaging in the actual projects so people have different ideas of what project-based learning is can you explain it to us so that we can set the basis for what we're talking about today? Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of my favorite examples is, you know, the Punnett Square, which isn't my background. I don't get excited about that, but I know somebody will comment that, you know, I do, right? There's always a science teacher that says, yes, I love the Punnett Square, but eighth graders are not inherently excited about the Punnett Square, right? So mm -hmm. when that comes along in biology, you know, eyes kind of roll, we don't know what that means. So what we did is we said, hey, eighth graders, there are learn there are parents that will find out their child has a genetic disease. It's going to be the first day that they're going to find this out. They have two questions. One, is my child okay? Two, they want to know everything there is to know about that genetic disease. And hey, three, whose graders. fault is it? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, right. Which side is faulted on that, right? So yeah. I've never put three in there, Jethro, but I'll put that into my talk, right? Uh, but what we did is then we said, hey, eighth graders, would you like to solve number two, right? Would you like to solve number two and give these parents everything there is to know about this genetic disease through a PSA, through a PowerPoint, through a pamphlet that we're actually going to put into doctor's offices? Like they're at, This is actually going to happen. It will help real families get through something that can be a really difficult time. And now suddenly they wanted to know about these genetic diseases so they could help people. And then they see in the rubric, they say, Punnett Square, what's a Punnett Square? Well, that's a great question. Would you like me to teach you about that so that you can help these families that just found out their kid has a genetic disease? So, well, yeah, I guess so. I want to help these families. So, yeah, I want to know that. I want to do this well. So that's the flip, I think, in really great project-based learning is we flip the script where the, the work is so authentic and so important that the learner is asking to be taught things like Punnett Square or compound complex sentences it's not that we have to know it for a test or because I said so or because of a grade. It's so that I can do really great work out in the world. Mm -hmm. That idea of it being so relevant and real uh, really does matter. And I, I always talk to people about if you, if you, if your teacher is the only audience that sees your project, is that a real audience? And it's not because the teacher is one person who it's not going to impact because she's looking at 30 to 150 of the same exact thing. And that's never a real audience.
But as soon as you add in somebody else, it becomes much different. Even if it's just the other kids in the class, that's a lot different. But what I love about what you're saying is that putting these pamphlets in the doctor's office is really going to make a difference um, because real people are going to see them and understand what they are and how cool that an eighth grade class put that together. You know, and then as a former English teacher, the English teacher in that PBL unit, I said, what do you think happens if a parent reads a pamphlet that has a typo in it yeah. or that has bad grammar, right? Like, are they going to trust that, right? So now suddenly my whole grammar lesson, like, has life to it, right? Because we're now we're really invested in making sure that we have a really high quality end product. Yeah. So you you teach this all over the country through Magnify Learning, and it's it's pretty amazing, but let's talk about the reality of that specific example. Once that pamphlet is made, then that project is not repeatable. So you got to do a new project um, with the next year's kids. And it's not something that you can just repeat over and over. After a few years, you can update that brochure, but do you really need to start from ground zero or how do you, how do you manage those kinds of things? Yeah, great question. So, you know, one way, because there are some projects you can do over and over again. Maybe you find other doctor's offices, but also just being real with the idea. That's true. If it's really authentic and you truly solve the problem, you need something new next year. And what we see is that our, our PBL facilitators that jump into this work in the classroom, that the engagement that they get out of that is worth the time of creating another PBL unit on the other side the next year, uh, because they're, the engagement goes. But it's a good point. So I try not to sugarcoat that. And we had a group that did a, a really great unit around the Olympics uh, a little while ago. Um, and then they, they did it again the next year, right? So, well, it flopped. So, well, why did it flop? Well, it wasn't authentic this year, right? The, mm -hmm. the first year when the Olympics were actually coming, like there were commercials, there's all kind of hype around it. This time it was all kind of fabricated hype. And kids know what the fabricated hype is and they're not, they don't engage in that. So there is a piece that, you know, there are a lot more resources now than there used to be. That actually makes PBL much more accessible, I think, to every classroom. But there is a portion that there's some upfront work to getting things going. And then the, the learners start to drive a lot of that learning throughout the PBL unit. And then the role of the teacher changes to be facilitator to uh, people say like the guide on the side instead of the stage on the stage. And um, I'm, I'm always a little leery of things that rhyme when it's advice, but you know, you, you get to have more of the relationship. You're, you're helping kids problem solve and do some critical thinking that maybe you can't, can't do in the lecture style of a traditional classroom. Mm -hmm. Well, I added one more rhyme to that sage on the stage guide on the side. And I added in a compass among us just to make it rhyme. Ah, and I see go. the teacher as the compass that she says, which way is true North but she doesn't tell you how to get there. She's not a GPS that helps you get back on track. Mm. She's the compass who says, this is North and you need as the student to be the one doing the work to get to where you want to actually be. And when you take that approach, then that changes the dynamic also, because it's about more than just, you know, saying, here's this goal that I'm trying to get you to, but it's identifying the goal with the student and then being the one to say, are you going to make that goal? And what do you need to fix to, to make it to the end goal? 
That's good. Well, maybe I'll keep using that phrase then if I can add the compass <laughs> among us and I'll give you credit for that. Okay. Like that it. sounds good. I'll, I'll send you the blog post and put it in the show notes so people can see it. Cause it's, it's something that whenever I explain it that way, then it really emphasizes the relationship that the teacher gets to have of being a, a mentor and a supportive person rather than being the fount of all knowledge. And it actually doesn't expect them to be the fount of all knowledge. It expects them to say, this is where we're heading. How are we gonna? How are we gonna get there? And involves the kids in that contribution to, to really feel like they belong, um, as as Dr. Sujiwise mentioned. So, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about some of these projects that you work with. Um, but before we go to that, I want to go back to that question about creating new stuff and how is it? Like you mentioned that that was really energizing for you and. You felt like you were like compared it to working in a startup where you're trying to get things done just in time for the kids to do them the next day. Um, how difficult is that transition for teachers to go from, you know, lesson planning to uh, lesson guiding or to lesson compassing <laughs> if we want to add that in? Yeah, that's right. I like how we're changing our, our verbiage here. <laughs> uh, you know, it it takes some it can take some time to make the switch and. I just talked with, I think maybe Brittany's in her third year of PBL and she's just starting to see the engagement to where she's, cause she was saying, man, this, this is a great PBL. Our kids are super engaged, but it took me a lot of time to put this together. And she's starting to see that there's this upfront piece of time to create this. And then she's seeing that she doesn't have to take a week and a half to talk about probability. She, that gets shortened down to three days now because the kids are engaged. She's not creating engagement or dragging kids along. The kids are working to learn probability to solve their final problem. So she's starting to understand that. So I mean, the rule, of, I don't know if there's a rule of thumb for that. Like some people jump on it and some don't. I think the advantage now in the PBL movement is that there are a lot more resources and structures. So in my book coming out in January, 2023, we've got six steps that you can work within. There's a structure so that it's not just kind of a free for all of, Hey, let's go figure out how to solve these, you know, the potholes in the parking lot. Right. And we're, we're going to solve this for the community. Uh, there's a structure to define the problem. You know, what do we want it to look like when it's solved You know, research, possible solutions, pick a solution, run it, and then reflect. So th because there's a structure now, I think it's much, um, I don't want to say easier or convenient, but there there's a place for teachers to step into project-based learning that wasn't there before. Mm. And they're not throwing everything out, right? They, those lesson plans have a place. You know, in that same example of, uh, you know, the doctor's office and the genetic diseases, the Punnett Square lesson plan that that teacher has done in biology is still valid there, right? Now it just has an umbrella of authenticity that it fits under instead of it's right before unit test. So we're not starting over. Yeah. I, I really like that idea of an umbrella of authenticity because what that says is here are the things that matter in this umbrella and put all the things that matter to this specific umbrella in there. And, and that can be a very stress reducing approach to it because mm -hmm. you're not saying you have to completely change everything about how you teach and really what you're what you're doing is you're just changing one thing which is why are you doing this assignment or why are you doing this whatever it is and when you think about it like that then if you don't have a real purpose then it doesn't make a lot of sense anyway like we're doing this unit because we have a test next week 
that doesn't make any sense, right? Nobody gets that, right. not even teachers. <laughs> and right. yet that's what we've been doing for a very long time. So I think that changing that dynamic of, of why are we doing this makes it much more easy for people to get on board, not to mention all the structures and resources that are in place now. Well, I, I've been using this term of bringing the why closer to the learner. Like it's true that you need to know the Punnett square so you can do well in biology in high school. An eighth grader just doesn't care or can't see it because it's too far away. So if I can bring that why closer, like you need to know the Punnett square so we can help somebody in a doctor's office in four weeks, that why is closer and they can see it and then they can kind of dive into it. Yeah, I I really like that. That bringing the why closer makes a lot of sense. Um, and it makes it more meaningful when it's right there mm -hmm. in front of them. You know, I argue that anytime you say you need this so you can be successful in the next grade level or the next set of grade levels, you're just shooting yourself on the foot and it's a complete yep. waste of time because no kid is thinking about that, nor does any kid care about that. Just like no kid cares about the actual standards that they pass off, only the adults in the school care about that. And they care about that so they can see whether or not kids are learning. But a kid's not going to be like, oh, yay, I finally learned the Pythagorean theorem, which is standard 2A in my eighth grade math class. Like they don't, they don't care about that and they never will <laughs> because right. it doesn't matter to them. Right, exactly. But if on the other hand, they can say, you know, I, I learned about the Punnett square because I made this for, um, for a doctor's office. They, they won't even say it like that. They'll say, I made this for the doctor's office. And there's this really cool thing called the Punnett square that tells you who inherited what and how that all works. And, it's it's pretty cool. Let me explain it more to you. It lends itself to that kind of thing. So let's talk about some of the cool projects that you have worked with teachers to create and implement um, in their schools. Yeah, and uh, let me give you a quick example. I was just in a school in Lexington, Kentucky, and I'll actually give you one that we gave kind of a quarter twist to. So the teacher was doing some field work with learners in high school, and they were going out to, uh, I think maybe even just across the street to a forest. So they're they're measuring these trees, and apparently you can figure out how much carbon these trees are kind of sucking up, how much CO2 they're sucking up and then producing oxygen, right? And really neat field work. Kids are engaged in it, and, and that was his, his project. And So what we did is we just took it a step further, really, with this idea of why. I like, sometimes I say, who cares? But it's uh -huh. like, but who, right? Who, who cares about that work? And the truth is there are people that care, right? So he, his first thought was, well, there's a grade level, two levels above that this work directly relates to. So could my learners present to them? Like, great. So now, you know, as you mentioned, it, it, the why is moving away from the teacher, right, to somebody outside of that classroom. And then we were just collaborating. So another teacher, we're just talking at lunch, right, just a quick conversation, says, well, what about this, you know, kind of keep Lexington beautiful project that, that's looking to bring trees in? What if they came in to talk? Well, that would be great. So then we talked about the next question. She always, well, how much time would it take to do that? And he said, well, it really wouldn't take much time at all. We just need to reserve, you know, this extra room, this open group space room that they have. We could bring in the other class. We could bring in this other community partner and we could present just like we planned. I don't think it would actually add anything to my unit plan as far as time. 
huh, what would it do for engagement, right? That's like a baited question. Like, what do you yeah. think that would do for engagement, right? Yeah. Well, obviously it would skyrocket. And so the engagement's there, but also the application. So he says, well, now we'd be able to go a little bit deeper with our work. So we actually had some engagement because it was field work. They were getting outside of the, outside of the school building, but the community partner brings in the engagement and allows you to get into deeper rigor, which I really think is the reason we have engagement. Yeah. So talk to us about how that how that rigor matters in this situation, because we often think of rigor as just more complex or more complicated or maybe deeper learning. But what does that mean in this specific example? Yeah, great question. So in this specific example, it means that um, you can't just follow the formula in the book, right? Like you're going to have these different calculations that are not going to be round numbers, Right. Yep. And then you're going to have to package these non-round numbers so that an audience can understand what you're talking about. So you've got these additional levels that you're adding and going deeper with to how do I now consider my audience when I'm presenting scientific knowledge? Uh, how do I collaborate to make sure that my non-round numbers, right? We all know that, like kids know that on a test, like they'll do it a couple of times until they get the round number. Like, well, that must be right. right? <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> but, but when you go out into a forest, like your numbers are not going to be round. So there's some, almost some inherent uh, uneasiness from learners there. So how do they then take those numbers and transfer, transfer them to an audience that can understand them? You really start to get in some different levels of rigor. We, we say critical thinking a lot and communication, um, but I think you get to see it on a learner when you bring in this community partner that has an expectation outside of the textbook. Yeah, Ryan, that's that's re that's really beautiful. Um, one of the things that we worked on at uh, in in our district was creating a earthquake detection machine in Kodiak, Alaska. Now, this in Indianapolis or Lexington probably is not going to have as much meaning because there's not a ton of earthquakes there. Um, just like in Kodiak, Alaska, there are trees, but there aren't a ton of trees, and we're an island in the Gulf of Alaska, so the um, the the need for that carbon-sucking thing is not as apparent to us, right? But debris cleanup from tsunamis is a big thing there, and so is earthquakes. And so with those two things, our kids worked to detect earthquakes before they actually happened. And a lot of prominent scientists do not believe that this is even possible, to be honest. And huh. what's so cool is that we had a team that two years in a row won an international competition based on this idea of predicting earthquakes. And they went to Italy. High school students went to Italy, presented, and won this international competition against um, PhD-level students trying to solve this problem and made it... It was just amazing because they actually predicted earthquakes. Now, they only predicted them by about 15 seconds. But the fact that you can predict them by 15 seconds is huge because if you can predict them by 15, you might be able to predict them by minutes and eventually by hours. But making this a real project that actually mattered to us really made the rigor that much deeper, made it that much more complicated and complex and then meaningful to us as well because it was something that we dealt with on a regular basis. So there are earthquakes there all the time. So you always have an opportunity to be checking for them. And then you can get some false positives. You can get some false negatives. And then eventually you see what is actually working in that scientific process that these kids went through to see what was actually happening. It's just incredible 
when when you think that it's just high school kids doing that. Yeah, and and I think sometimes we get stuck on engagement and rigor. Like those are big words; they're important words we have to work with. But I think what I heard in that story is opportunity, yeah. right? Like that opportunity to just expand their view of the world. Like, hey, we're kids in Alaska; we get to go to Italy, right? Yeah. Like their possibilities are just expanded in a way that's super powerful for what we really want for our learners. Yeah. So here's a, a different question. How important is it for you to bring in liaisons to help communicate between partners um, that you could be working with, like those doctor's offices or the Green Lexington group and the actual school and teachers? Uh, what role does a li liaison between those two play? Yeah, I, th I think they've got a good place to to be. I don't think you have to have a liaison, right? We've got teachers that can reach out, have a good network, and they can bring in community partners well. But we do see districts that have a liaison out to the community. They'll have a community partner breakfast, you know, once a quarter. They'll bring them in and share some of the great examples of project-based learning that's happening, and also use that opportunity to say, hey, here's what's coming up. Would you like to step in? And you get to really cultivate some of those relationships well. And once you can get some community partners that come back again and again, that, you know, one, they have empathy for your learners. They know that things aren't going to be perfect, but they know that they can add to the learning environment. But you can also ask more of them, right? So instead of, you know, maybe being at a presentation to listen and give some feedback, they might come in the middle and do a marketing workshop, right, with learners and really be a part of, you know, the process of the scaffolding for a PBL unit. So the liaison can do a really nice job of that, um, you know, visit some, some rotary organizations or Lions Club and, and start to network for teachers, which we know that time is always a piece that we're trying to, you know, kind of shelter our teachers, get them as much time as we can. So a liaison can definitely play a, a, a pretty, it, it, I guess I should really say an amazing part. I've seen it done really, really well with these community partner breakfasts once a quarter, where it gives the learners a chance to shine again uh, and, and learn how to talk to business people out in the world, which is one of the key metrics I think we want our learners to have. Yeah. The thing I'd like to highlight from what you said is that you're inviting those community partners to be more than just the audience, right? And we mm -hmm. talked a little bit about that before, that we're expanding the audience. But if you get them to participate in the role of teaching as well, there can be some really powerful results from that. Can you share an example of, of where you've brought them in earlier on and seen how they mm -hmm. could be part of the teaching process? Yeah, we had a, a community partner uh, who analyzed DNA for the state police department and just, and was literally across the street from the school, like just, you know, kind of in this strip mall almost. And so here we find Dr. Bush, she becomes a great partner for us, a great advocate, but she came in and talked about some DNA stuff that just went way over our heads, but we all knew it and just loved it. Right. Like she, mm -hmm. the students, the, the teachers, it's like, she really knows what she's doing. She's doing this in the real world and she could show us some of the work that she was doing. So she answered our questions at the lower level, but it was really neat to also have somebody there that could kind of expand the universe of DNA for us and for the learners. Again, just that opportunity and awe factor. Uh, there was rigor that was well beyond any, any of us, right? That, mm -hmm. But to know that that's there from somebody who cares enough to come into the classroom, is a it's a powerful experience for kids. Yeah, that's so cool. I, I love that idea. And whenever you can bring someone in to, to share what they're passionate about as like, as a human being, 
then right. it's it's way more engaging and authentic also because it's not a teacher teaching because she has to or even wants to teach that. It's somebody who has made this their life work. <laughs> it's a yeah, much different right. energy that they bring to the table with that. So, uh, Ryan, the final question that I ask is, what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative leader like you? One thing that they could do is to go and talk to learners. And hopefully it's not the first time you've had this one, but yeah. uh, just, right, just go and sit down with learners and, you know, and talk about what is it like in a classroom or that uh, assignment that's out there of follow a student for a day, go and see what it's really like. And I think that can really start to move, a, to create a grassroots movement, even for a principal, right? Who has to think about staff and culture and systems and processes, but really moving way back follow a specific student. Maybe you want to follow, you know, your high achievers. Maybe you want to follow some learners that struggle or middle, like middle of the road, like follow some of those students and let that be your guide. And obviously you can't make a bunch of different decisions the next day, but just let that experience kind of, kind of soak in that a little bit and say, how can I improve that as a building leader? Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And I've done several episodes on the shadow of student. And so it's something that uh, once you do it once, you kind of like want to keep doing it and see if the experience changes depending on what what different aspects of that student are different. And following a high achieving student around compared to following a student who struggles with behavior issues and and then following someone with special needs really gives you this deep insight into the the struggles that they face at each of those levels and how you can help them. I think that's that's brilliant. So um, if you'd like to learn more from Ryan, his website is magnifiedlearningin.com for Indiana, right? Yep. <laughs> and, Although we're in thir- 15 different states, it still yeah, is. Yep. But the, the domain name reminds you that he's starting in Indiana, which is great. And the beauty of the world today is we can travel beyond that. Um, you can also follow him at Ryan Stoyer, S-T-E-U-E-R on Twitter and his book PBL Simplified will be out very soon, uh, January 2023, and he also has a podcast of the same name. So Ryan, thank you so much for being part of Transformative Principle today. Thank you, Jethro. Appreciate the conversation. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E.